2: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to
1: the Share the Wealth Show, where minority professionals can learn to escape the racial wealth gap and catapult themselves into abundance. Your host, Nicole Pendergrass, grew her net worth from being negative to multiple six figures. Join her on her investigative mission to expose secret strategies of the wealthy so we can all have the tools needed to build the life and legacy we were created to possess. Now it's time for the show. Well, hello there, Wealthpreneur. Welcome back to the Share the Wealth show. This is the show where we discuss strategies on how to build, grow, and protect minority wealth. And today, we are actually presenting you with our podcast spotlight series. This is where we are highlighting other high-level and impactful podcasts and episodes that are in alignment with the Share the Wealth Show mission of building and growing minority wealth, So I really enjoyed this episode and I know you will too. So enjoy the show. I personally believe that having too much cash on hand is really just risk aversion in a different outfit. If you're interested in building wealth beyond just your basic needs being taken care of, part of that strategy should include stress testing your relationship with risk and learning all of the ways that your money can work harder than you. I get that loss aversion is a real thing, but so is inflation. Mm -hmm. And the longer you have your money sitting in places where the interest rate isn't keeping pace with the rising cost of living, you're going to experience a a decrease in your purchasing power over time, which erodes the value of your savings to begin with. Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten.
2: And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about savings accounts. Yay. Savings. I, you know, I mean,
1: not just savings accounts. We're talking about
2: saving we're talking about saving and you said it with a spiritual tone just now that's not the kind of saving that we're talking about today we're talking about the doors saving. of the church ain't open <laughs> that's not yeah we're not welcoming every and anyone in no obviously i'm joking here but we're, we're talking about savings and i will use a bit of a spiritual reference i feel like savings or the act of saving is like the holy grail of personal finance it's oh like, yeah it's like the synonym it's like when you when you Mention it. It's like saving. It's almost like synonymous. It's like it's it's what you mean. This is what you mean by personal finance. You talk about saving and the (laughs) importance of saving, right? Like that's investing
1: is like next level.
2: Investing is next level, right? But it all starts with saving. It starts with saving. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like one of those things that um, you know, I think about Google, right? Being synonymous with search. Yes. You know, but there's a downside to that, and I think that's kind of where we are, actually, both with Google and saving, where so many people are accustomed to it that they've really like stopped to think about, like, why did I start using this tool? Why did I start doing this thing? Like, is there anything else new out there? What might have changed? Am I applying? I think more importantly, like an old or outdated point of view on something into like my grown adult life. Right. Uh And I think that's especially true with saving. Like I'm going to let go of the search sort of, you know, metaphor here, but I just think a lot of people are just, they haven't really revisited the subject since they started their personal finance or sort of financial journey. And I think that's a really important one. It makes me think about uh, someone who will remain nameless. And this actually happened with quite a few people, but, you know, you you start to have these conversations because this is normally what we do. We talk about money. And so people tend to be a little bit more comfortable opening up to us. And not too long ago, we had a friend who shared with us that, um, like, she just didn't even really know that there was, like, life after saving. Like, right. she's just still saving. I was like, well, what do you mean? She was like, well, I mean, I, I'm not checking account. I have a savings account. But, like, what else is there? Like, she hadn't even, didn't know what to do. She just like, even as an adult, like earning arguably really, really good money, like, multiple. I don't know if it was multiple six cigars, but yeah, I'm pretty clear she's earning like a lot of money, but she was just saving it. Like, she was not acting on that saving. She wasn't investing. She wasn't doing yeah. anything. And like, my heart broke. But at the same time, I was like, you know what? This is why we do what we do. Because for some people, they may be rolling their eyes and saying, you know what? Dude, like, that that's like baby food. I need something a little bit more sophisticated. And for other people, it's like, actually, we do need to talk about this talk about because it. a lot has changed since maybe you were a teenager or yeah. even like a lot of changes in the last 10 years. It doesn't matter how old you are. And so hopefully we can help uh, reintroduce it to uh, to a new set of folks or just reframe it for some folks who haven't visited the subject in a while.
1: Yeah, I never thought about like how childhood affected how people view savings. But I can, I remember my very first piggy bank. Even my son has a piggy bank in his room, despite the fact that we handle less and less cash. So it's kind of been empty all these years. But
2: you notice that there's a youthful sort of element when it comes to savings. And I think that creates a lot of blind spots for people to your point. They're first introduced to it. They even visually, you think piggy bank, which is like, I'm a grown person. I don't have a damn piggy bank. (laughs) But that's part of the problem it's like we don't think about like how savings and savings accounts play a role in our lives as adults. And so that's that's part of the reason why we're talking about it today.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say two observations that I've noticed as well. The first is that, to your point, there seems to be a lot of confusion about where to keep money. It's right. a common question that we get, especially now, since there's been this volatile market that has disrupted people's plans to spend large chunks of cash on a car or a house, or they might get windfall money through a bonus at work or a severance payment. And it's like, where do I put it? And then the second one is exactly what you were touching on, where there are people who pride themselves on being savers, but no one ever says when to stop. So it becomes this identity that almost develops into a fear of spending, which defeats the whole point of it all. So I think we're going to try to address both of those in today's podcast, starting with where to put your money, because you absolutely have options beyond the piggy bank and beyond the standard savings account that you get with your checking. Yeah, account.
2: there's shoe boxes, there's mattresses.
1: <laughs> On top of the refrigerator. Cereal
2: boxes, if yeah. you really could, put it in a cereal box. Put in, it in your bra. Put it in the uh, the shredded weeks, because nobody's ever going to open that.
1: All right. So let's talk about different savings accounts. So first of all, there's your standard savings account that you typically get when you open your checking account at a bank. They throw it in there as a perk and a benefit. Some have a minimum balance, but it's usually reasonable, like $250. And they typically have a slightly higher, I mean, slightly higher, but still statistically insignificant interest rate attached to them as an incentive for you to keep your money in there. But other than that, the biggest perk to a standard traditional savings account is just the ease of access to your money. Because the account is connected to your checking account, you can transfer money. You can use your debit card to get cash out of it. You can use the account for things like overdraft protection. So it's solid. It's there for you when you need it. It's the continental breakfast of savings
2: accounts. I was going to say it's the back pocket. It's the back pocket. It's the back pocket of (laughs) accounts. Like it's there. Yeah,
1: when you need it, when you remember it's there, you can just you slide two, something two in there.
2: perfectly fine front pockets. Like if you're carrying in enough stuff that you require to put things in your back pocket, okay, <laughs> knock yourself out, it's there. But like you got two perfectly good front pockets, especially the right back pocket. Like if there's you something. You don't put your, in your wallet back there. I well sometimes, but like yeah, I, I try not to carry front. a wallet.
1: Oh yeah, you're one of those digital. Just keep people. it
2: digital. There like we don't know. need to carry around all that stuff.
1: All right. Now, (laughs) moving on closely related to the traditional savings account is the high yield savings account. And they offer higher interest rates than traditional accounts, which is really the biggest benefit. But they also typically require a higher minimum balance. These types of accounts are best suited for things like emergency funds or for someone who is saving a big ticket item or for someone who may have received a severance and just needs to take out a little bit of money at a time. It's great for money that you don't need to access on a regular basis. So it's not it's not a every day I need to be able to tap into a thing
2: or even every month. Really? I mean, it's,
1: right. It's, right.
2: It should be stowed away. Somewhere. Should be
1: stowed away. Yeah. So let's say you had ten thousand dollars in one of these high yield savings accounts that was earning upwards of three to four percent like they are now. You can make an extra three, four hundred bucks annually just by parking it there. Now, the downside is that these interest rates do fluctuate and can they can be variable because they're tied to market interest rates, typically an index rate like the federal funds rate, which is set by the Federal Reserve. So if the federal funds rate increases, so does the rate on your high yield account. Yeah. If it decreases, so does your account. And on top of that, banks can adjust on their own to attract customers or save money. For example, Apple just came out with a really competitive rate at 4.1% to get people to move money into their high-yield savings account. So it just depends. We're in good times right now, but a couple of years ago, they were earning 1%, yeah. maybe even 2%, depending on how much you had on there. Which is still better than the 0.1% that a standard savings account will earn. I remember earn, that too. But don't expect it to be permanent. Like, yeah. don't get too excited. And then the other downside of high-yield savings accounts is that ease of access that you may be used to. That's not really there all the time. Sometimes you have to wait 48 hours for the money to transfer to your checking account. Or there might be a fee to use the debit card in a familiar ATM. Yeah. So there's just, you know, there's some trade-offs that you make. Yeah. Do you remember your first savings account?
2: Um, I will say the first savings account I remember. Uh, was definitely one, uh, this was probably high school and I think I started saving, um, I think I was doing, I was working with a guy, it was like a friend of my mom's and basically helping to like set up for conferences back then, like getting kicked back some cash on the side and it was fine. And I would park that money in a savings account and then ultimately I used all of that to help get my first car. I don't remember it playing like a really important part of my life, but I do remember having like that little deposit slip, which I don't think I ever, <laughs> yeah, know, like that book of slips. Oh yeah. And you, you never use it. Like, I don't know anyone who's ever actually run it. out. You ran out of slips. Oh, I didn't run out. Of like slips. no one ever runs out of savings account slips. It's but like I would fill one complete, out when I got
1: like birthday money or graduation correct. money and it would go in my savings account.
2: Yeah. You felt like you were doing something.
1: I was so, doing something.
2: So there you go. Okay. <laughs> so there are savings accounts. There are then high yield, high yield, excuse me, savings accounts. And if we sort of think of this as like a sort of a graduation, right, in terms of interest rates, then the next level. Now I do remember this. I remember having a CD because okay. that I, that felt like I, I was really, I yeah. So I had a certificate of deposit. I guess I was an overachiever, right? Because I had savings accounts. And I was like, well, now, you really want to do something? You, really, you, <laughs> you want to save? You want to make it. some big money? <laughs> then you can save. In a certificate of deposit. And I don't mean that to be demeaning to anyone else who may have a CD, but like I'm just saying that's where I was at the time. So first, let's take a step back. What is CD? It's an acronym for Certificate of Deposit. Probably the most awkward name for all Savings accounts available, but basically it's a type of savings account that requires you to make a deposit of cash just like any other savings account. But you're rewarded with interest that's typically a little bit higher than a high yield savings account because of the restrictions involved with that account. So, one, you're likely going to have a higher minimum balance than a high yield savings account. Again, it all fluctuates depending on the financial institution. But for sure, with a CD, it's almost like you're locking it in a vault for a specific period of time. Right. That's not the case with the savings account, With the savings account or even a high yield savings account, you deposit money today. You can technically take that money out tomorrow with the CD. You're basically saying, hey, I'm going to give you this money for six months, a year or three years upwards. And I'm. Telling you that I'm not going to touch it. Now, obviously, if something happens, you can touch it, but you are basically being rewarded for the promise of saying, I am not going to touch this money. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's sort of the third level certificates of deposit. I think it's good for people who, you know, you may have like a sudden amount of cash and you're like, I, I think more than anything, you're just like really maybe struggling with discipline or you really need to learn that discipline. And so as a result, you need a Punitive measure or like you need it to be really difficult to like access that money. Like you got to wake up, you got to go to the bank, you got to like you need an obstacle, like a real obstacle. This is where CDs come into play. And again, that can be either for a teenager, it can be for a young adult, it can be anyone. It's really just about having that discipline. So in terms of penalties, uh what might that penalty actually be? Well basically they just take away the incentive. They take away the incentive and in some cases they also slap you with like a flat, a flat fee, right? The so incentive being the interest. The incentive being the interest that you would have earned, they basically take all of that back, right? Whereas you don't have that case with the savings account. You can you will have you get to keep whatever you've earned up to that point with a CD, they basically just take it all away and then charge you an extra couple of bucks, maybe 25, 50 depending on the amount. Uh, for breaking your promise with them or breaking the promise to yourself, depending on how you're looking at it. Okay, so if I'm going to use that metaphor, this idea of kind of graduating, you start with a savings account, you then go to high yield savings accounts where you just have a higher interest rate. You graduate to a CD with a little bit more interest rate, but that comes with restrictions. And then we get into the world of what's called money market accounts, which I, I struggle to even categorize them as savings accounts, but this is like, you know, significant amounts of money. I haven't checked because, again, they you know, differ by bank, but like we're talking about people being able to park like upwards of $20,000, $25,000, like typically larger sums of money. And you'll see it sort of offered as a type of savings account. But it's different because it kind of acts as a bit of a hybrid between the savings account and a checking account. So if you get a money market account, like you're basically saving, you're putting money in there, you are earning interest on that money, but you can take it out pretty much anytime you want. And- they tend to offer you some of the capabilities that you would get in a checking account with your savings account. So instead of just having, let's say, a deposit slip, you might actually get a check or something like a check that basically allows you to spend against or from that money market account. In some cases, they may even offer you a debit card, which allows you to basically Buy things or spend, which again, to me is counterintuitive when it comes to money market accounts, but they're there for a reason. And I would imagine for people who are getting large sums of money and you just want to park it somewhere, but you don't want to, you know, to your earlier point, wait two days or you can't really afford to wait 48 hours or whatever it is, but you are enticed by the interest earning opportunity for that money. it, it, It serves a purpose, I would imagine, for people who have large sums of money coming in and out. So it's there because otherwise you can park it in a checking account and you're not really going to earn much, if any, interest on that. So those are pretty much the four typical savings accounts. Savings, high yield savings, CDs, which are certificates of deposit, and then money market accounts.
1: All right. So now that we've talked about the accounts, let's talk about how much to save. Because whenever we ask people how much they should be saving, 95% of people are going to say, 10%, 10 percent 10 15 percent, yeah to maybe 15 there's always that one or two people who say oh my parents always advise me 20 to 25 percent but overwhelmingly people throw out 10 yeah. percent and then when we ask okay why 10 percent it's simply because that's what they were told yeah right that they haven't done any math they haven't stress tested. that it's just like oh that's just what i that's what I heard
2: I think 10 10 to 15 percent is the equivalent of um milk does your body get
1: Yes, or an apple a day keeps a doctor away. Or an apple a day away.
2: keeps a doctor away. Yeah, it's right? just this another cultural Everybody knows that. It's saying, it's just what it's we like, said, Duh. it's what I believe, 10%. it's what we do. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's actually worked for a lot of people, but right. this is what we say, this is what we do.
1: Which is a good point because since we started Rich and Regular, our mission has always been to inspire better conversations about money and part of that mission and and trying to get a better conversation means really questioning these old rules of thumb like saving 10 percent because if the data around the retirement crisis and the number of people who can't afford a thousand dollar emergency tells us anything it's that 10 percent is a start but it's probably not enough probably need to add a little little dip on that chip
2: yeah it's interesting because when i think about savings i really try to look at the bigger picture because everyone's life is different so like it's important to have these general rules of thumb, but I don't think we should be so tied to them that we're actually trying to make our lives sort of fit around these rules of yeah, thumb. Yeah, they're because not gospel. They're not gospel, right? That, that really like makes it difficult. And I think that's part of the reason why so many people get tripped up. You know, I will say this. The reality is in our society, in today's world, we prioritize managing debt well over saving and investing. There are a lot of people who take pride in their abilities. Who are, I always pay my bills on time. I'm never late on my credit. And again, you talk about better conversations about money. We hear those things all the time. There are people who I would imagine are, are still saying it that are listening to it right now. And so, I think there's nothing wrong with that. There's obviously a positive side to doing that. But I think what happens is when you deprioritize something that is as fundamental and key or critical to your financial life as saving and then moving beyond that into investing, it really sort of contributes to the world that we're experiencing today, which is that a lot of people have underfunded retirements. We have uh, a lot of people who are relying too heavily on their social security, even though social security payments were not designed to fund your entire lifestyle. You have pe- a lot of people, older people who are now moving in uh, with their children who are and vice versa, young and vice versa because we can't afford the rising cost of living. And so all of these things, I think, are working together. Like, yes, there are all of the isms and all of the bad things out there that are happening, but we can't ignore the role that personal responsibility plays in all of this and the reality is we just don't save enough we have not saved enough and as a result we need to revisit some of those rules when i think about um the old rule of thumb it's like we used to allow people to smoke on airplanes <laughs> or you know uh, we didn't always have seatbelt laws no they literally used to be cocaine and coca-cola like True. i i think of like these old rules as sort of lingering stories that we tell ourselves that were birthed in a different time and are still being practiced today to our detriment. So we have to wait for something to happen in order for people to kind of snap out of it and say, you know, maybe we should revisit this rule or certainly revisit sort of managing our lives so strictly around these rules because it doesn't seem to be working.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it just takes a while for us to understand the long-term implications of a decision that we made as a culture, as right. a society. You know, when we were smoking on airplanes, we weren't aware that 40 years from the line, down the line, you might suffer from lung cancer, or emphysema. It just felt like, oh, this is fun. Once they found out, they started putting warnings on things. People started talking about the dangers of smoking. Doctors would encourage you to quit. It's right. the same is true for saving 10 percent, where it's like, OK, we've tried that rule long enough we now have fast forwarded to 50 years. We know about technology, we Correct. know about the rising cost of living, yep. we know about health and and the rising costs of healthcare and like 10% just isn't going to get you it's all the way good. there. It's a start. It's a start, but like we have to, you know, keep going.
2: Okay, so here's a newer rule and I'm not I'm not co-signing this rule, but I am saying this is a newer rule. It's a framework. Or A framework, a newer way of looking at it and it's called the 50 30 20 framework, right? So 50, 30, 20, obviously those all add up to 100. This is a way of looking at your income or your budget. Uh, And the way it works is pretty much saying, all right, you should divide your income into three categories. There are needs, there are wants, and then there are savings. It's called the 50, 30, 20 rule. And so you can basically see where we're going here. The idea is that 50% should be spent on necessities, things that you absolutely need to have, housing, transportation. Uh, food, insurance. That should account for about 50% of your income. Then we move on to the 30. These are your wants. These are the want-to-haves, not the must-haves. These are things like entertainment. This is the nights out, the Netflix, the date nights, your clothes, all of those things. And then you have the 20% remaining. And the idea here is to say 20% of your income should be saved. So off the bat, I like that because we're saying, A, we've recognized that 10% is enough. And we're recommending that 20% be this new number that people focus on. I love that. But I have to say that here's what I don't like. I don't like, again, very similar to the 10% rule. There's not enough flexibility there. Right. I think about things like um, like a car. If you tell someone, well, like, I got to have a car. It was like, And that's part of the 50%, right? And I was like, all right, yeah, but it's a luxury vehicle. Like, that's a luxury car that, you know, when you add up all of those other things, like it actually exceeds 50 percent. But people say, well, this is what I have. And so I'm just going to have to work with what I got. And then they start to take away from, let's say, the 30 percent. But in reality, they're really taking away from the 20 percent, which is what goes to savings. And then people just throw the entire framework away because it just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Same with high cost of living areas where it's like there's not many places in the West Coast or in you know these high cost of living New York, places like that where. The housing alone is 50% Correct. of your take-home.
2: This take, you're right. That rule of thumb just doesn't even apply. Doesn't even I live So in they York. throw out the whole thing. I live in San Francisco. Like that yeah. doesn't work for me. Like let's throw it out of here. The other thing I would say is that it doesn't really specify to my knowledge. Uh, I don't know who the founder or the creator of this framework is, but it doesn't even really specify. Like, are we talking about gross income? Are we talking about net income? If we're right. talking about, let's say take someone home. who is investing 10% into their 401k, is that a need? you categorize retirement as a need because you do need to save for retirement? <laughs> so it gets a little tricky. It's like, all right, even if you don't, let's say you make $100,000, 10% off the top goes into your 401k. Now you're dealing with the remaining 90%. You break that down into 50, 30, 20, you get to the 20. Are you factoring in the 10% that you've already saved? Or are you, are you saying 10% of gross plus 10% of net? Like all of that stuff just gets confusing. But I will say the one thing that I definitely don't like about this rule this is the last thing I'll say is that if it were up to me, I would reframe it to call it the 20, 30, 50 rule, because I think that at least gives people some priority and some structure. And it emphasizes the idea that saving should come first, right? Pay, yourself, Pay first. yourself first, save 20% and then focus on your one. So in fact, I would say 20, 50, 30 is probably the better way to think about the 50, 30, 20 rule if you're one of those people. And if you've never heard of it, maybe look it up and sort of apply that remix to it.
1: All right. So we've talked about different savings accounts. We've talked about how to think about how much to save. And now let's talk about when to stop saving. And I feel like I should hedge a little bit because I don't want you to go into this segment thinking that we're going to tell you to YOLO your finances. Right. We're just saying that too much of a good thing is a real phenomena, And we feel like we should be the ones to talk about it. Because I personally believe that having too much cash on hand is really just risk aversion in a different outfit. If you're interested in building wealth beyond just your basic needs being taken care of, part of that strategy should include stress testing your relationship with risk and learning all of the ways that your money can work harder than you. I get that loss aversion is a real thing, but so is inflation. And the longer you have your money sitting in places where the interest rate isn't keeping pace with the rising cost of living, you're going to experience a decrease in your purchasing power over time, which erodes the value of your savings to begin with. And so to combat that, you really have to look for savings accounts that have a higher rate, like some of the ones that we mentioned, Or consider investing those dollars into assets that have historically outpaced or at the very least kept up with inflation, things like stocks, real estate, other accounts.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I forget who it was. I think it was Erin Lowry that we were having a conversation with. And she basically said something to the effect of like hyper frugality is almost like consumerism in reverse. It's like this yes. act of hoarding. Right. Yes. So some people are hoarding things and other people are hoarding kind of hoarding money. cash. Right. They're afraid to do it. And there's a negative, you know, consequence to both of those. So I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it. I will also say as a recovering super saver, uh I, I wanna like offer some advice on like what else you can do with that money. And the first thing is like just give yourself permission like to upgrade, to spend, to enjoy the work that you have worked so hard for, the money that you've earned, right? So upgrade your quality of life. This could be anything. Like for us, I remember like being so happy of like when we decided to make different decisions about the types of grocery stores that we were going to. And again, however you want to do it, it could be that you're going to increase your budget um, or you're just going to go to a different store, a nicer store. It could be that you're going to take a break from cooking, right? Like you're tired, you're going to dine out a little bit more. Use meal
1: prep service. Meal
2: prep service, personal trainer, vacations, like any of those things. You know, even something as simple as refurnishing your home or reimagining a space in your home. Shout out to our friend, Kevin Payne, who just did quite a few work or or good work. I think it was on his basement and he's moving on to another area. But like little things like that are still, you know, I I would say good ways of spending money because you're like, it's putting yourself to enjoy family time. Like you're maybe going to enjoy yourself Being at home, watching the games that are going out to bars, however you want to look at it, like whatever it is, like even if there isn't a financial aspect to it, upgrading your quality of life, even though it costs you money, can still be very much a positive thing. For me, I've always found a lot of joy in like finding or I use the term investing, but like really purchasing that piece of equipment or that thing in the house that makes your at home experience Better, So it could be like new pots. It could be a new mattress because we kind of need one. It could be like food savers, which is basically just like a vacuum sealer, like whatever it is. So upgrade your quality of life. Certainly something that you can do. Investing is obviously something that you can do. So if you already have a fully funded emergency fund and a maxed out 401k or you don't really want to max out your 401k because you have enough in there and you know that it's going to compound and give you enough of what you need in retirement. What do you do with the rest of this discretionary income, this surplus cash instead of saving it? Well, you can consider opening a different type of investment account. It could be a Roth IRA, a taxable brokerage account. It could be a college savings account, a five two nine, a custodial IRA. If you have a child, like all yeah, of those HSA, HSA, account, all like, of those things, a I bunch think. of
1: different savings accounts that have an investing component.
2: Yeah, all of them are really really good options. And I think it's easy for people to say, yeah, but I don't have enough in it to like make a purchase or to buy these kinds of shares, again, like a lot of these institutions have kind of removed that barrier. They allow fractional shares. You can like invest tiny amounts of dollar. There are round apps. Like there are tons of ways to sort of get around that. I think the other thing that's really cool about that is for a lot of folks, this becomes the opportunity where they truly make a decision to invest on their own. And what I mean by that is this is an opportunity where outside of an employer-sponsored plan, something that you're doing through an employer, you are making the decision to choose a financial uh, firm or a company that you want to work with. You're evaluating uh, the offerings, you're evaluating the funds. Like It's a true act of empowerment. And I think more often than not, this opportunity, this sort of moment is one where you kind of move that tassel over a little bit and say, you know what, actually I can do this. And I think it's also a cool opportunity to do something new. If you've never worked with a robo-advisor, but you have a financial advisor. This is that opportunity for you to say, well, let me at least see what it looks like with like a couple hundred dollars. See if you can wrap your head around it. And now you have the benefit of having something else that you can compare what you've done on your own with what your financial advisor may be doing for you. You could also, if you're talking about not saving anymore, reallocate that funds to pay down debt. You could also reallocate that funds to just make charitable contributions, give it away, start a scholarship is another great way to do it. There's also a thing called a donor advised fund, which is basically your way of creating your own foundation, which is cool. Like you can do that. Every single one of us can very easily open our own foundation, our own mini foundation called a DAF, which is an acronym for donor advised fund, and basically make tax deductible donations into this foundation, and then you can dictate which organizations you want to make those contributions to. The point is determine how much you need to have saved. And once you hit that number, stop and repurpose that income. You don't need to keep saving because you will reach a point of diminishing returns, which basically means the cost of holding onto that cash outweighs what the money is earning or providing you.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a phrase that I use, which is elevate the everyday. Yes. And it's just my way of taking that advice, but trimming the meat from the fat. Because it can be a really slippery slope between upgrading your quality of life and, just going and cascading exactly into yeah. lifestyle inflation and consumerism. So Elevate the Every Day is a way for me to focus and prioritize the things that I interact with daily and just start to address the little challenges that I have around the house and in life. A few small examples might be Purchasing shelving to organize a closet or upgrading the towels or the sheets. I'm really picky about my hand soap. I don't like my hands to feel completely dried out when I'm done washing them 30 times a day. I use salon quality skincare and hair care. We buy the more expensive coffee. These are things that we interact with on some level every single day. And then there are the subscriptions. I believe in a strict media diet for my own mental health and well-being, so I purchase content and I subscribe to publications that have a paywall. I invest in smart fitness equipment and insoles for my shoes. I don't just buy off the rack. I get I get them custom now cuz my okay. feet then change.
2: Make <laughs> sure they can flexing. hear the head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of flexing the energy. On you. Okay. <laughs> We get it.
1: (laughs) I also have a sauna membership, which allows me unlimited access to UV saunas, cold plunges, hydromassage technology. So these are all the ways that I have just kind of reprioritized the money that we would have been using to save to actually improve the quality of life, which encourages me to live more in the moment.
2: You still haven't tried the cold plunge yet, though, right?
1: I haven't tried it. I've been working my way up
2: to it. If you're listening out there,
1: (laughs) I've been doing the cold shower
2: thing. Um, leave us a rating and reviews and encourage her to use the cold plunge that we pay for
1: because we pay for, it's included it in the membership. Matter.
2: You don't use it. You've been talking about it. Y'all help me out, get her to actually take advantage of that thing that she's over here, giving you guys advice. About. <laughs> Last couple of things with savings accounts. And this is a really important one. Uh, and I'll try to breeze with this before we get to final thoughts. Uh, there are withdrawal limits with savings accounts. This is a sort of a two part enforcement lever that is in part being enacted by the federal government, the Federal Reserve, I believe, and the banking institutions themselves. So there's a federal rule called Regulation D, which is used to limit certain types of withdrawals. Uh, Basically, there's a cap on it. So I'm pretty sure you can make no more than six a month. And it's a weird thing because it's in part like an institutional law, but it's also like a law. Right. So a couple of things you want to be mindful of, because if we're talking about savings accounts specifically as it relates to emergency funds, well, obviously you can see a world where these two sort of conflict. So you want to be mindful of a couple of things. One, if you're looking for a new savings account or if you're looking at your existing savings account, you want to make sure that you are clear what the maximum withdrawal amounts for your savings account are, it $500, is it $1,000? Because that's basically gonna shape the amount that you can withdraw to solve for the emergency. I think about people all the time and they pat themselves on the back that they have a fully funded emergency fund, but they don't have like emer- an emergency plan. So it's great, even if you do have the emergency plan, but it's like, all right, well, what's a likely emergency? Well, let's say we gotta go here and it's gonna cost us $10,000, but you can only make $500 <laughs> withdrawals within a certain period of time without hitting a fee. Not to say that you can't access your money, but you certainly have to factor in those things into your account. So you want to find out what that minimum number is. And if you realize that your actual institution may not necessarily be suitable for your actual emergency plan, you might want to reevaluate where you're parking your emergency fund. And you might even say, you know what, it's not worth going there because it offers a higher interest rate because of the purpose of that particular account, like the ease of access, the speed in which you can get that money, be it instant or 24 hours, may outweigh the couple extra $100 or $200 that you're going to earn in interest on an annual basis. So I think that's a really, really important point because savings accounts are very popular for people housing emergency funds, but more often than not, we don't think about emergency planning and the role that savings account functions play in the role in actually being able to handle an emergency when it comes.
1: I love that. That's a great takeaway. I You made me start thinking like, dang, what's our what's our daily withdrawal? All right, final thoughts. All right. So my final thought is that, look, people who are really good at saving deserve to be celebrated. They've got the dedication and the discipline that has put them in a really strong financial position, which is an achievement in and of itself. But I just want to gently invite y'all know I like to gently invite, I like to gently invite you to the world of financial goal setting beyond saving. Because if you really take some time and look at your why with curiosity instead of judgment, you might find that the benefits of compounding interest, diversification and long term growth actually outweigh the safety and security of just this growing pile of money in a savings account. And you might stumble upon some investment goals that don't have a financial angle. Maybe you've always wanted to start a business or donate back to your school or buy season tickets for your favorite team. There's nothing wrong with investments in yourself, in your community, or even in your joy. For me, it just boils down to seeing your money as a tool for a better quality of life throughout and not just always a future state.
2: Yeah, I love that. I have a similar point of view. Big surprise there. I think uh, saving is a skill. It's a skill that, you know, can serve you your entire life. Right. And I think for a lot of folks, once they've built that skill and they've mastered it, the, the problem is they don't really revisit it. And so I I look at this and I don't know why, but my brain immediately goes to like the treadmill at the gym. Maybe because I'm getting a little older and I realize it like as this little ticker, there's this thing on the side that shows like this is your target heart rate or your peak heart rate. If you're 18 to 29 or 30 to 45, I'm like, Ooh, I'm getting, I'm moving down the ladder here. I'm not, you know, so I'm one sort of realizing, first of all, like don't be so hard on yourself. Like this is actually good for you. But all of that to say, I think when it comes to saving, if I'm sort of following that framework, as you get older, the role that saving plays in your life might fluctuate right the skill is still there but the role that it plays is certainly worthy of revisiting and i think that's part of the reason why we wanted to revisit that subject now if you're in your middle age or approaching middle age Think about saving differently as you did when you first started out in your teenage years or in your 20s. And certainly if you're older and you're thinking about it in your 60s or 75, all those things, like how quickly you can access it, access to ATMs. Like some of these features may not even be relevant to you anymore. And so I think that's really what people should be thinking about or the way that they should be thinking about savings accounts for any purpose, whether you're saving for a vacation, saving for a big spend or saving for emergencies. All of those things are different as you get older. And so you should really be factoring in this new set of criteria as you're thinking about saving as a whole. The good news is you've done the work. You've got the skill. It's kind of like riding a bike. You never really lose it.
1: I love that. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success. If you are a longtime listener of this podcast and you've been saving your review, take this as your sign to repurpose that energy and head on over to the ratings and review page and leave us a five star rating and review. We will see y'all
2: next week. See ya.
1: As good as these podcasts are, our core focus at success remains our amazing magazine. If you want our best stuff, you need to subscribe. Many of the voices you hear here, share more thoughts there.
2: Yep, we also have big plans for 2022 as that will be our 125th anniversary. Yes. Yeah, Success Magazine guides you down the path to your best life. So head to success.com slash subscribe. Here in Key West, we were out before it was in. In
0: this open and inclusive paradise, you can be yourself, make new friends, and savor our live and let live vibe. With LGBTQ friendly accommodations, our legendary nightlife, and year-round activities and events, it's always a good time to come as you are. Key West, close to perfect, far from normal.
1: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.